I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. We are back in the New York City office. No more in the lovely Palm Beach studio, unfortunately. Uh, but it is good to be here, back on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And so today we have um, a vibrant list of topics. I was out for a week or so. So we've got a nice uh, smattering of things to go through today. First one, of course, you know, wouldn't be any day if we weren't having some material Amazon news. And uh, we've spoken about Amazon ago a number of times in the past. This article here is saying, hey, Am- Amazon is opening a cashierless supermarket. This isn't that big of, of a news. I, I mean, they kind of already have done this. Maybe they have more general purpose stores that have less perishable products in them. And so now it's an it's an expansion of the existing format basically into more kinds of products, including things like fruits and vegetables and other things that technology couldn't handle previously. Right. And now this is a 10,000 square foot market with a lot of perishable items. And, um, you know, they're saying they could they could eventually build one. 50,000 square feet or 100,000 square feet. We had, we've spoken about for many months before this was even public that eventually we had heard kind of through the, through the grapevine that Amazon was talking to retailers about licensing the Amazon go technology. Um, and we had said how, <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, if you're a retailer, it's like, what do you do? Um, and here's an article why retailers should think hard about Amazon Go partnerships. Basically, you know, there's a lot of retailers, unfortunately. So some retailers are probably going to want to jump on this. But if there is ever a way to get all of the major retailer CEOs in a room and tell them one thing that they should absolutely not do, this would be it. This simply is it. The one piece of data the one area of your business that Amazon does not touch yet yet is what happens in your stores. Right. Now, Amazon doesn't want to build out Amazon Go stores for every industry and every vertical. No, they don't want to do that. They want the data. They want the data and then they want to be effectively a payment platform. Right. Um and and take the vig, but they don't need to get into every industry. Why bother doing that? So they're talking to different industries about licensing this technology. Horrible decision. No retailer should do it. Instead, what these retailers should do is go put pressure on a PayPal. Go put pressure on the uh, credit card companies like MasterCard, Visa, maybe an Amex. They should have viable Amazon Go alternatives. There are a lot of tech startups that are building out the technology that have raised actually decent rounds of money to build out the technology um, to do the image recognition and the, and the kind of AI machine learning tracking that they're doing to see what you take off the shelf and then put it in your cart. The technology is there. It maybe isn't as good as Amazon's because no one has... No large tech monopoly has taken it under their wing and invested in it like Amazon has. Right. Amazon has trialed this out in tons of stores, basically, and then worked out the kinks on its own dime. No one else has invested that much in it. 
But the business model is proven. This is happening. It's not like they have a few stores. They have hundreds of stores right. and plans to open thousands of stores. They are trying to poach. You know, these retailers are customers of Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. I mean, these are their customers that are actively being poached by Amazon Go. And yes, Amazon Go is going to let the consumer use their card, but that 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 card fee that that MasterCard, Visa, or Amex earn is going to be crammed down absolutely by Amazon because they ultimately have the relationship, you know, in the store and have a much stronger, I think, point of leverage right. um, with the consumer. So and and the retailer for that matter. So and they're also going to be able to cross sell all kinds of services. Was if I'm a credit card company today, what I don't necessarily have is what people actually bought, the transaction level data in terms of the line items on the receipt. Amazon can absolutely get that information because they're they the ones- They have to get that, right? Right. They're the ones cataloging what you bought, what you picked up off the shelves. And I think with the early kind of caveat with this was, oh, sure, they're just doing it, but it only works with standardized items. And as you would expect, that was the case when it started, but that's not the case anymore. Now it's non-standardized things like produce where there's a lot of variation and it, it works. They figured it out with the technology and I'd expect that's going to continue to expand to other kinds of formats and uh, as the technology improves. Another example of people pooing Amazon to be proven wrong is now Amazon is in clothing and Amazon now accounts for 14% of all menswear digital spend in the, in the United Kingdom. I mean, that's pretty significant. Now this is just 14% of online spend. So it's not, all spend, but it's still pretty significant in the sense that, you know, I feel like a lot of people have poo-pooed Amazon's kind of fashion efforts. Right. And big luxury designers have said, well, we, you know, we don't want our, our brand to be cheapened by being alongside kind of everyone else. And now we've also covered on the show that Amazon is going to launch a separate luxury fashion store as well. Um, so yeah, you know, it's here in clothing. One of the great features that I hear people loving with this is you can buy stuff on Amazon clothing and you actually don't even need to pay for it. Right. They, they, there's like an Amazon wardrobe offering or something like that. They'll send you a bunch of stuff and you pay for what you keep basically and right. you send back the rest. Exactly. You know, that's a great example of basically a linear hook. It, um, it's, a, it's a feature. It's a linear service. It's a value-added service where you're just basically providing credit to customer. the customer. Where else have we seen this done with what Uber is doing in Uber Freight, where historically in the industry of uh, you know, trucking, the truckers, you, know, you complete the job and then, and then the, the brokerage or the 3PL needs to get the money from the customer and that might be net 30. And then they need to turn that around to the trucker. And many times you've got these truckers that are doing jobs and could be waiting 30 or 60 days to get their money. So Uber Freight basically said, well, we're just going to pay you within seven days. Right. I think Convoy has a similar, one of the Uber Freight competitors is introduced a similar kind of thing. Right. And then they are going to basically cover the spread on behalf of the trucker until they get paid by the customer, which might be 30 days later, they've already paid the trucker. The job is done. Pay the provider. Right. So um, you can see how these big companies and Uber with a nice balance sheet, Convoy doing it, Convoy's had to raise a lot of money. But you need a significant balance sheet. This is a great example of, you know, a large tech monopoly. They can just finance these things. Um, and it's a nice little linear hook value add 
to make it a little bit stickier, a little bit more differentiated from the competition. And you add that up with all the other value props and boom, you've got 14% uh, digital market share in menswear. Okay. So we have spoken about really the only place where there are unicorn B2B marketplaces in the United States is in the agriculture industry. Uh, A few episodes ago, I covered some like antitrust stuff, which, you know, which I I thought was kind of blown out of proportion. Um, But I was talking about where I thought there was real value um, in the agriculture space. And there's a little clip here. uh, And we're going to talk about Indigo, which is one of those two big unicorns is doing layoffs. And, um, and this clip kind of covers why they're doing those. We'll see what happens with this. I don't think there's as much meat here for these incumbents in terms of them having broken any antitrust laws. However, if you are an incumbent B2B distributor in the ag space, which Cargill is, which Bungie is, which ADM, Archer Daniel Midland is, where there's a lot of fragmentation, where there is a lot of lack of pricing, pricing transparency, where a marketplace can drive a lot of value both to the producer and the consumer. That is really where there's a much uh, bigger area of concern for these incumbents rather than uh, where there's much more consolidated supply, which is all the um, really downstream activities here that, that are being supplied to the farmers initially. Actually, that's actually another example of a kind of linear value-added service. Like I see the value-added service of an indigo of a farmer's business network is like, hey, we help you get all your seeds and like fertilizer, right? Right. But again, there's like five manufacturers. There's no real marketplace dynamic there. That's where they kind of got this, like they tried to sue the incumbents over antitrust stuff. And I don't think there's much of a case there. But what this article is saying is indigo is now guess what, focusing on the marketplace side of their business and less so on the kind of, I would say, more upstream part of the business, enabling farmers to get all the stuff um, that they want to do, you know, in order to actually grow crops, right? So they've uh, let go 150 staff members and the layoffs come as Indigo zeroes in on areas where it's seeing the best returns, such as its marketplace an eBay-style grain platform connecting farmers directly with buyers and bypassing some of the world's top crop traders. And it will give less priority to businesses like agronomy and transportation. So agronomy would be all that, you know, upstream value-added service. Right, and the transportation, they wanted to build like an Uber freight-like kind of service. Yeah. So um, basically, the business is still fine. They were basically just focusing on non-core marketplace activities. Previously. Um, yeah. And, and so they decided to be prudent. I got to give the leadership credit, though, because they just raised $200 million last month. Right. And they still went ahead and did layoffs. Interesting why they did layoffs as opposed to like putting those people into different roles. It seems a little bit odd. Um, so I don't know if he's actually telling the total truth, how much of this was just kind of like you hired a bunch of people and you had some duds and you had to clean house versus we're it's probably a mixture of a, a few things. They are probably refocusing. They probably did have some dead weight. They got $200 million. 
They reduce a little bit of burn. Some functions you need if you're buying your own inventory and taking that in and selling it to farmers that you don't need if you're just running the marketplace, for example. Yeah. I imagine that plays a part of it too. Yeah. You just think, I don't know, if they had good people, why wouldn't we want to keep them in like, they understand the industry. I don't know, put them into other jobs, whatever. If they are growing so fast and they've got... So... Anyway, takeaway is the marketplace is the key part of this. The marketplace is doing just fine. You know, I don't take this news as, as kind of discounting any of the ability for, for these two unicorns to be very successful. Both of them, the industry is a $100 billion industry. And these incumbents are getting, are getting it handed to them, frankly. Um, so on that topic, incumbents not taking action, what we're calling not so agile giants. Um, and, and I like this article uh, from CB Insights. 14 CEOs who got axed after failing to navigate disruption. That, that was pretty funny. Um, and this just kind of lists them off. You can see here. Um, Toys R Us. Interestingly, I mean, Toys R Us also went bankrupt like a few years ago. Polaroid. Blockbuster, everyone's familiar with that. BlackBerry, we wrote about that in the book. Yep. Um, Nokia's not on here, although they probably should be on here. Um, yes. Wrote about that in the book also. Um, Barnes & Noble twice. Now, I kind of disagree with this, this Ford Mark Fields one. And let me explain why. I think uh, at the end of the day, it absolutely comes down to the CEO. The CEO sets the tone. The CEO makes sure that you have the right culture. The CEO makes sure that you're allocating capital correctly um, on different bets, short versus mid versus, you know, longer term time horizon type of priorities. And for the CEO to truly or for the company to truly embrace new disruptive business models, not just corporate innovation. We've spoken on the show how there's a whole spectrum of corporate innovation, right? Not all corporate innovation needs to be personally led by the CEO. But with this article and with the, what we're talking about, Not So Agile Giants, when you truly want to navigate disruptive, like truly disruptive business models, like my heaven existing business model, and it's no longer going to be the modern business model in my industry, we need to basically get a new business model that absolutely 10,000% needs to ultimately be led by the CEO. There's no other person who can actually do it and pull it off. There will be too much uh, problems in the core business being able to actually execute effectively unless the CEO is there driving it. Um, now, again, that's not every kind of corporate innovation. Okay, There's a, ver there's a whole spectrum if you're a large multi-billion dollar company that you need to be um, deploying resources against when it comes right. to what some, call some of those other innovation. kinds of corporate innovation can also make a huge difference to your success. It's just, it happens in a different part of the business and isn't necessarily as much of a mental model change from what you do today. So it fits into kind of the existing yeah. uh, processes of the organization in a way that the kind of stuff Alex is talking about doesn't. If you actually look at, I mean, Mark Fields was only CEO for maybe a couple of years at Ford. But if you look at the deals that he did, he bought Argo AI, which just got a billion dollars. He bought it for, it wasn't a billion dollars, it was a billion dollars with all the earnouts for the founders. But 
you know, it's kind of publicized as a billion dollar acquisition. It, but in order to get all the billion dollars, there's a series of milestones they need to hit. But I think Volkswagen just put a billion dollars into Argo AI uh, in the past, what, three, six months. Mm-hmm. So that's going and that, and that's going quite well. Um, and I don't think that he bought, um, what's it called? Uh, what was the like um, via competitor? I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but I know what you're talking about. They did uh, shuttle services basically on prescribed routes within Chariot. the city's chariot. Yeah. Hackett was overseeing that kind of like innovation department um, uh, um, before becoming CEO mm-hmm. of Ford. He bought that. They bought the scooter company recently. Right. I mean, these are nice experiments. They're expensive experiments, but they're not going to fundamentally change the business model. They're not going to fundamentally, um, you know, figure out what Ford needs to do from making cars digital again and all these kinds of things. Right. So when you look at that, and I think Hackett's probably a couple years into the job now too. And you line the two up and I, and, and if I look at what fields did versus Hackett has done and roughly the same amount of time, to help set them up for a truly new kind of disruptive future. I would say absolutely the deals that Fields did um, are better than what Hackett has done, you know, and the work that we did with them basically straddled both CEOs. So this one, I don't know. I don't think he really deserves that rap. Jeff Immelt from GE definitely deserves that rap. We've talked a lot about GE Digital and what they did and did not do on the show. We've talked a lot about GE Digital. We're going to talk a lot about GE Digital on the next topic from what is innovation theater. It should be kind of like the poster child of innovation theater. And then basically have a bunch of retailers and, uh, and, and some product retail slash product manufacturers. You're in a tough spot. I don't know. What are you really going to do? If you are a, these are like mid-sized retailers. I mean, um, these aren't bad. You know, J. Crew is doing what, like a couple billion dollars in revenue. Victoria's Secret, are they doing like five hundred million? Or they're not massive companies. Where and you don't have a super strong balance sheet that if you want to go do, if you're a retailer, what are you going to do from a platform perspective? You got to do marketplace, and you got to try and do a vertical specific marketplace. Cody Cody could do this. I think we'd actually spoken to some of their executives. Mattel also toys could do this because they're nice kind of niche, niche marketplace opportunities, right? Like makeup. And there's a lot of independent makeup manufacturers that are getting scale, are getting distribution and demand through Amazon. Um, toy, toy marketplaces that are safe for kids. And the toys are verified that they're safe for kids, right? Kind of like the Chewy model where we saw you want to make sure the pet food is safe for your pet. Um, how could you be kind of using some niche marketplaces like lingerie and like general clothing from J crew? That's a tough one. I don't know how you really kind of like carve out a niche around that. Um, so anyway, you know, some of these I think are well-deserved, but, but, but why do these not so agile giants fail? And it really comes down to the CEO, um, and their ability to, uh, to get the right team in place to have the right culture, to have the right system and process, the right focus, to make sure that they are personally involved and allocating their time and capital 
appropriately, particularly on the key things that will truly, truly disrupt the organization. Um, and, and they've got to figure out that balance. And uh, the board is there to help, <laughs> help make sure that they chose the right CEO because that's kind of, that's one of the board's most important jobs. You need to make sure that you have the right CEO in place because the board can't go micromanage and can't really go another level down to the C-suite, right? It's really kind of like CEO is here, board is up here, and then the C-suite's down here. The board and the C-suite interact, but the board isn't really picking the C-suite, right? The board needs to pick the CEO. The CEO then needs to make sure uh, he or she has the right executive team and then, and then the, uh, the, the, the management team underneath the executive team and so on and so forth. Um, so does the board pick the right CEO or not? And then um, is the board able to um, really push the CEO to think, uh, to think through things, to really challenge the thinking, to make sure that the strategy is flushed out properly, to make sure that the CEO is focusing on the right things and not on the wrong things, provide support when needed, um, and additional analysis when also needed. So. Um, you really want to make sure that that board should be adding value to the CEO, right? As opposed to just kind of policing the CEO. We're going to actually also talk about kind of getting that boardroom buy-in next. Um, so innovation theater, Steve Blank just wrote this article. Well, it was a few months ago, but I, I it's kind of stuck with me. Um, why do companies do innovation theater instead of actual innovation? Um, how would you sum this up in like two or three sentences, Nick? Yeah, I think what he's talking about with, uh, innovation theater is basically companies do stuff that sounds cool. They issue big press releases, but it actually doesn't make much of a difference in the, the day for customers doesn't provide a lot of value. It's like hopping on buzzwords like AI and we'll open up an accelerator around blockchain, but none of this stuff actually really makes it to market. It's, you know, we'll do a little ideation maybe. And it, it makes you sound like a better place to work and like you're on top of things, but it isn't actually fundamentally changing anything at the end of the day or not much uh that that's kind of the high level of what innovation theater is and basically he's saying that it's very hard for new companies to change and at a high level they focus on process rather than kind of the results and if they try to fit new things into the existing process is that's how you basically get this innovation theater where you go through the motions uh but don't actually get the results all of these are great strategies and tools that business schools build and consulting firms help implement. He's talking about process to, to run and improve the core business, not process to go and figure out how to do disruptive innovation. Kind of just like processing the hell out of it. And you're doing a lot of stuff, but it's not meaningfully driving anything home. And um, you're checking the boxes, basically. Yeah, you're doing all the things, but... It, and I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges going a level deeper is um, how do you get the right focus to understand? Yeah, I, if I'm a big multi-billion dollar company, I mean, there's literally a million things that I could go and look at investing in or doing like corporate accelerators on or, you know, what's the impact of like AI and blockchain and fill in five other buzzwords, right? And like, how do you get that focus? And I think that's one of the big challenges where you say, hey, you know, these are strategic priorities. We need to, you know, 
invest, partner, buy, build, you know, against these different priorities? How do you lay that out? How do you help give structure to your innovation teams to say, these are the kinds of deals that we want to go and do? Or are these the kinds of prototypes, hacks, things that we need to build from scratch, right? Or here's some of the stuff that we need to do internal and external on. And I think also, as importantly, what do you say no to? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the the challenge. If you have a lot of resources, it's very easy to kind of dabble in a lot of different things. Right. But without that focus and say, yeah, that's interesting, but that's not for us. uh, That's how you kind of get strung out in this way. Yep. And I think, you know, the, the cheat code that we use is basically one of the underlying principles of the show, which is that platforms are king. And when you understand, like Sun Tzu, right? It's like when you understand the enemy and you say, hey, platforms are coming in here. Platforms are the dominant business model. I don't need to worry about 50 different types of business models. I need to understand the platform business model. And then maybe it's not best for me to be the platform business model. but if I understand that the platform business model is coming into my industry, how do I either own that or how do I respond and how do you get that focus? Because I think this trend, this kind of macroeconomic shift of platforms coming into traditional and we're still in the early stages, right? I mean, we, we've kind of seen it just scratch the surface. It's like consumer media with like user generated content and all these like social media apps. You've seen it in retail. Now we're starting to see it get starting to see it get into the belly of the beast of the true economy, financial services, logistics, trucking, B2B distribution. Amazon's only doing like $15 billion in B2B distribution. We're still so early um, in really seeing the impact. Not even it's not even in healthcare. Uh, We're just starting. And these are massive, massive, massive industries um, where. I think healthcare is $3 trillion. Consumer retail is $2.5 trillion. I mean, just many of these industries are much larger than the existing industries that have been penetrated so far. So how do you get boardroom buy-in? Let's focus this on, on really, truly disruptive innovation. How do you, if, if you're Macy's and you want to go to the board and you say, hey, I want to fundamentally mm, you know, change our business model. I want to let our internal buyers compete with third-party sellers and third-party sellers could be selling the same products that we Macy's are selling today, but they could sell it at a lower price. And then that inventory is going to sit on our balance sheet. And I, Oh, and by the way, to go do this, um, you know, our infrastructure isn't really ready to do this. So I need to go buy a company or make some investments in, in tech companies that have really good tools for third-party sellers or in fulfillment or or in fulfillment for third-party supply. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's the plan and we need to go do this. Um, how do you make that case? Okay. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. So I think there's a, there's a few key parts to this. One is how do you bring data to help validate the opportunity, help show that you've done your diligence, that you understand both the threat and the opportunity and where you need to start and focus to your point. You need to say 99 no's for every one yes that you make, right? So how do you bring the right data to the table to A, make the right decisions and B, show that you've done enough diligence to the board to, uh, you know, to have them believe you basically. 
I think the second thing is what is the timeline that you're trying to execute upon? How much money is this going to cost? Is this going to lose me a bunch of money? And if it is going to lose me a bunch of money, you know, talk to me about break even. Because when are we going to stop losing money? Trust me, the board is going to drill you on how long this thing is going to lose money for. Um, and basically, resourcing, staffing. Who are we going to do this? How are we going to execute upon this? Do I need to go hire a bunch of people? What's that going to cost? Right. You know, all those kinds of things. Um, how is this going to defocus from our existing, more short term, immediate priorities from just our existing resources versus new resources? Um, and all those kinds of things. I'd say those are probably the main buckets uh, that I would lay out. Obviously, behind that, you need strong financial modeling and you, and you need to put the numbers together and, and have that help support the business case. But that's kind of the general business case that you want to go and build. Oh, and then, by the way, you need to deliver this information in an easy to understand manner. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and this needs to happen. Not just this isn't just a one boardroom meeting thing. And then they say, great idea. Let's go do it. This right. is a multi-step process where you are having multiple boardroom discussions on this, where you are then having probably follow-up one-on-ones with separate board members. You're going to understand, the CEO is going to understand the boardroom better than anyone else. And you're going to understand who are your advocates, who do you have in your corner, who's against this, who's on the fence, who if, the, you know, if these one or two people are really for it, then, then probably the rest of the board will feel much more comfortable. Um, so who's that kind of like innovation, technology, digital person or people on the board really going to make sure you do strong one-on-ones and prep with them and have them very much so involved throughout the whole process. But you're going to have multiple formal board meetings where you discuss this. Um, and you want to start building the business case with all of them a part of the process. And it's a collective collaborative experience. So, you know, on the first front, from a data standpoint, how can you go spend very little money and put a very small team with a little bit of time and a little bit of money on the ground to try and go validate, to try and go get data, to try and go run experiments or what we would call manual hacks or manual prototypes. How can you go get real world data, not just like consumer surveys and like uh, qualitative right. interviews. Actual operating the business is what people will tell you is always different than what they'll do in yep. a lot of cases, particularly when money's involved. And so for Macy's, right, if they already have some like accessories that are coming from third party sellers, it's a great example. Right. I have data on accessories. What I'm saying now, board, is I want to go and open up women's clothing to marketplace. And what's that going to do? Oh, and I've done some small tests, very curated tests with third party sellers to see how this would happen. Right. And I want to open it up, not just to like a handful of major retailer brands, but maybe some smaller and mid-sized type brands would love to sell on my website. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've done some tests with them to make sure, all right, how do I maintain quality? How do I onboard them and all this kind of stuff? So you work through the kinks. I've done some tests. Hey, you I've already data. gotten a bunch. Uh, here's a whole list of people that are interested and would love to come sell for this. Right. Um, oh, you know what? I've also gone and talked to all the tech startups in the space because in doing these tests, we realized that I would need to go build out these like 20 tools. And that's going to take me about 18 months uh, to go and do. So these tech startups here can solve for this, this, and this. And I think we could do some partnerships, 
um, or maybe do a minority investment or whatever it is, right? Or just use the SaaS tool, whatever. Here are the ways that we are going to accelerate um, that timeline from building everything from scratch. What I would say, there's three pieces of this and you need to slowly build consensus around each of them. One is the story. So what's the bigger narrative of where do we need to go and how do we get there? Two is the supporting data. So that's when it stops becoming a hypothetical conversation of, oh, we should, for example, have a marketplace. It's what's the supporting data say about the marketplace opportunity? Who are these types of customers? How does that affect our existing business? If we do it or if we don't, what's the opportunity cost? And then the third piece of that is the action plan. So I understand I need to do this. I understand where the opportunity is. I understand the the bigger story and vision behind that. Now, how am I actually going to make this so I get this business to substantial scale in two to three years? Yeah. And what are the steps that I need to take to make that happen? Those are the kind of three things that you need to build confidence around. A couple of key things that you said there. One, that story. I found that the best story has a little bit of carrot and a little bit of stick. You need both. You really do. Because why do anything disruptive and risky and expensive if there's no stick, right? Like I could just keep making money and I'm fine. Why do I need to go do this and all this hassle and risk? And if I'm the board, why do I need to go put my name on the line when there's no threat? So you need a little bit of stick. You need a threat. Hey, you know what? If we don't do this, this is going to happen with or without us. It's inevitable. Who's doing it? Oh, Amazon's doing it. Look, they have 14% market share for menswear in the UK. You've got to show that there's a real opportunity cost if you don't act, not just opportunity upside if you do. Exactly. Oh, but by the way, there's a huge opportunity because we could do this. And here's why we could win because you can do a vertical specific marketplace. And there's plenty of precedent showing that vertical specific marketplaces can carve out their own territory. Oh, and here are the assets that we already have. We already have huge e-commerce demand and da, 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 right? So I love that, that big story, that big vision, uh, carrot and stick. And then the other point, that two to three year timeline. I think you go into that boardroom and, and you can give them a five year time horizon. You're going to have a tough time getting that approved. I think you give them a two to three year time horizon where you have an initiative that can get to scale that can, um, or, or maybe if it's not truly at scale or critical mass, you're kind of at roughly a break-even point. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, this is not a platform example, but look at what Disney's done with Disney Plus. Their whole thing is like, right, by 2023 or 24, we'll have enough subscribers where we can break even. And that was really the whole vision and pitch. So you've seen this in action with companies that have tried to embrace radically new business models, which Disney, again, not a platform business, but still very different than their traditional yep. pay TV model. And the board knows, right? Hey, you say two or three years. Okay, maybe it's four or five. You go in, you say it's five years. They're probably going to say, okay, maybe it's six or seven or eight. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, I don't know about this, right? Like, how could we accelerate this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, using the balance sheet of the business, assuming you haven't riddled it with debt because you've waited too long, but assuming you still got a decently healthy balance sheet, how can you use that balance sheet to solve the other thing, which is resources and technology gap and maybe some chicken or egg? demand and supply as well. And there's a lot of tech startups in these spaces and you don't need to do everything on your own and you can accelerate and you probably should look at accelerating if there's good options in the market, which in most of these industries, there actually are a lot of really good options. And it's really just a matter of figuring out how do I, what do I need to do internally 
what strengths do I bring to the table? What are my gaps? And how could I fill those gaps and accelerate my timeline to go get this new business model going and be right. successful? But I don't need to do it all myself. It, it, there's three buckets if you're looking at the kind of acquire, partner, invest that you can fill in. One is talent. So do you have the people on your team you think can execute this? Uh, two is technology. Do you have the technology to actually support this platform business model? And then three would be liquidity. So consumers or producers, you feel like you're lacking in one of those areas and need to accelerate. Those are kind of the three levers that you have that you can look at and say, there's existing tech startups or companies out there that already have one of these. I can partner with them or buy them and get there much faster. Mm-hmm. And that that's the kind of holistic vision the board is going to want to see. They're going to want to understand that action plan and say, all right, here's what we want to go and do. We have a few potential targets. We have data to support that. And here's the vision of where we're going to get within the next three or so years. Yep. Now, And the last thing, which is our next topic is the legal considerations <laughs> around this. Now, that's definitely going to be a factor. And that's why you need the board to be involved, you know, really from the beginning or, or the very early stage, maybe not the absolute beginning. You can go start to kind of do some of those hacks, prototypes, get some initial data validation without needing to, uh, you know, to, to, to make it too much of a, of a line item on the board agenda. But um as you progress, this is absolutely, you know, th- there are a variety of legal considerations that the board is going to be very interested in and, and need to be taken very seriously. So um, one of the first ones is, or one of the general themes is, what is the blowback to my existing business, to my existing brand? And what kind of jeopardy am I putting the existing enterprise uh, in if something goes wrong? Uh, which by the way, something will go wrong. It's, and that's, I think how you should approach this conversation. If you go in there and you say, nothing's going to go wrong. I have no talents for failure. You're lying. Right. And if you're not lying, you're just naive. So something's going to go wrong. The key is how do you minimize risk and how do you approach things in an iterative manner, but, but put appropriate safeguards in place to hedge that risk. And so one of the things on the branding side is, does this need to be fully branded right away? And the act- I think the answer actually is no. And I actually think most new disruptive, innovative initiatives are better served by not having the brand attached to it in the beginning. Too early. Yes. Yeah. Too early. The moment that you attach the brand to it, the general counsel and the legal department are going to be all over this thing, and they're going to start clamping down on you for exactly these reasons. So. If you you need separation, we've spoken about it literally till I'm blue in the face on this show, um, that you need separation from the core business to be successful from any new disruptive, risky business model initiative, particularly in the early stages. So how do you get that brand separation? Simple. Just don't use the brand. Eventually, you know, there's other ways to use the brand. It could be like, you know... um, if you if you if you have a separate marketplace initiative, right? It could be like new marketplace initiative powered by Macy's or something like right. that. Uh, they're right? a partner or a major seller on your marketplace. We've seen Granger yeah. have a completely separate brand for Zorro. Right. Uh, they're like pseudo marketplace for industrial supplies, right? Or we've seen Walmart have Walmart marketplace too early, which is why it failed also for this reason. Right. And it didn't succeed until they basically had Jet, this separate right. business, grow and then they bought that and kind of digested it. Yep, exactly. Um, so other considerations, it depends on 
you know, it depends a lot on are you going to build everything from scratch or not? Assuming you're not going to build everything from scratch and you're going to look externally to plug some gaps. How do you, that you're going to, how do you ensure that the traditional business's IP is protected? Get that one all the time. Me personally, I'm not as concerned about that, but certainly that's going to come up. Um, and, and there are a variety of ways that you can solve for that and, and be prepared for that. But then I think, you know, some of the more interesting stuff, which is a mixture of kind of like legal structure and ownership and rights, you know, it's kind of like deal structure is why if, if I see an interesting startup and I want a team, I want the tech, I want their users, one or some mixture of all three of those, what is the best way for my company to get involved with that tech startup? And that is where I think it gets really interesting. And that's where I think you can view these legal considerations as typically kind of being a hindrance as opposed to now being actually a huge help and enabler for you to be successful, right? How can you leverage, how can you bring the legal department in on this and get them to work with you, right? How can you get them to be creative? Where you say, hey, I want to go get involved with this company but I would actually love to not even have it be publicized. And I would actually love to just have a path to go buy the company outright after we do little tests. And if it works, then I want to buy them. But I don't really want anyone to know that I want to buy them until the test actually works. How do we solve for that? And that's going to depend on a variety of things. Um, that's going to also depend on what the cap table of that startup looks like. What does their existing operating agreement look like in that business? Every one of these things is very particular and there's a lot of moving parts on this, but um, figuring out those kinds of details and having it be in a way that can, again, mitigate the risk for the traditional business until the traditional business can gain enough confidence to really go all in on it. Right. Say this is the opposite the of magic. innovation theater, which we were talking about earlier, where what I would call kind of press release innovation by press release yeah where you want to make a big announcement and say oh we're doing this here are the approaches we think this is a big and strategically important bet so we're going to go and figure it out and only once we're ready to show our hand to the market uh then do we put our name behind it publicly and this kind of thing not oh we're trying this out so let's tell people so we look good mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly um you see i mean th- then there's obviously a lot of tax considerations by you see uh you know, uh, venture, corporate venture units set up in certain ways, and then they do their investments out of that. There's uh, procedural reasons why they do their investments out of those units as opposed to, you know, directly from the kind of operating entity. And there's all these kinds of things. But I think materially, you know, in terms of sol- how, how do you solve for disruptive innovation, how can, how can you use these legal considerations to your advantage to, to minimize risks to the core business? So the core business can get enough confidence to really go all in on it. Like what Walmart did saying, we're just going to do an outright acquisition with the jet.com, right? There's a huge, um, kind of, there's a huge middle, middle ground from going full on acquisition for billions of dollars to how do I go prove this, show that it's working, get some traction, get the board on board. Um, and then really spend a bunch of money in a very public way. And if it fails, if I'm the CEO, I'm out of a job. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different ways to solve for that. Um, and, and then, um, 
account for these issues, get the board on your side. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us and we will talk to you tomorrow.